Hi, this is Bill Feltham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal and other articles. Uh, this time we're starting out in the tech section of the Wall Street Journal. And the first article is Facebook Messenger Kids. How young is too young for a chat app? Facebook's young messaging app is an obvious way for preteens desperate to connect with friends but don't take their first step into social media lightly. This is by Julie Jargon, May 12, 2020. With kids becoming increasingly antsy at home, many who are still too young to have their own phones are begging for a way to chat with friends during the coronavirus pandemic. This puts parents in a bind. Open the door to social media earlier than planned or be the bad guy. The go-to app, not surprisingly, is Messenger Kids. With Facebook created in late 2017 for the 12 and under set, the number of daily active accounts on Messenger Kids has grown by more than 3.5 times since the beginning of March, according to a Facebook spokeswoman. Only because of the shelter-at-home order did we agree to let our nine-year-old daughter use the Messenger app, our kids app, says Rain Henderson, a consultant in Briarcliff Manor, New York, who installed the app on an old iPhone that can't make phone calls. It was clear our very extroverted daughter was having a hard time not connecting with friends. Were it not for the pandemic, we wouldn't have done it. Miss Henderson receives invitations from several parents through her own Facebook Messenger app for her daughter to join the kids' version. It's the classic, but all my friends are doing it dilemma. Messenger Kids was downloaded 2.8 million times in April, compared with 1.9 million times in March, according to mobile data and analytics provider App Annie. In interview, I interviewed several experts in children's media who agreed that if parents are going to let their children chat online, Messenger Kids is a safe option. Parents are in full control of who children can communicate within the app. Through a dashboard in the parents' own Facebook app, parents can see when their children are using the app and whether they are making video calls or texting. Parents can review all images sent or received, download all of their kids' text messages, and disable the app during certain hours. There are no ads in the free Messenger Kid apps and no in-app purchases. While experts say Messenger Kids keeps kids safe from strangers, external marketing, and inappropriate content, it's a slippery slope in in presence in the it presents that has them worried. You're indoctrinating them into the world of social media. I think there's a risk of children feeling the pressure to always be on, said Christine Elgersma, senior editor of social media and the learning resources at Common Sense Media. No, duh. Her own 10-year-old daughter recently was invited to join and Miss Elgersma declined. I'm not ready to introduce her to all of the nuance of social media, she said. There's a reason parents have so much control over kids in this age group. It's because of a law that predates Facebook. In 1998, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act was intended to prevent tech companies from collecting and disseminating the personal information of children under the age of 13 for marketing purposes. Thanks to that law, which had nothing to do with protecting children from inappropriate content online, 13 came to be considered the age of Internet adulthood. So what happens when kids turn 13? Facebook says it doesn't automatically migrate kids' accounts to regular Facebook accounts when they turn 13, and if they continue using Messenger Kids after that, their parents still retain full control of the account. But once 13, kids can create their own social media accounts without their parents' permission. 
We build messenger kids to encourage dialogue between parents and their children around digital etiquette and online safety before they're eligible for Facebook, Messenger, and Instagram accounts, the Facebook spokeswoman said. The company says it understands parents' reluctance to allow young children to join a chat app and assemble a team of online safety and child development experts to advise them on the app's development. While Facebook and Instagram don't have parental controls, the company provides tips on helping teens safely navigate those platforms. There aren't many pure online chat options for parents who want to give their children an opportunity to connect with friends without sending them into Facebook's walled garden. There are kids' messaging apps like uh, Zulu, which is X-O-O-L-O-O, Messenger, Just Talk Kids, and Phoenix Messenger. But Messenger Kids is where the bulk of kids have migrated. Facebook says that the kids' app has more than 7 million monthly active accounts. Most other child-focused apps and websites with chat features such as uh, Roblox, Animal Jam, Azumi, and Kids World involve playing games. There are also the massive online multiplayer games that have chat functionality and the gaming chat site Discord, which pose a whole other set of concerns. Beyond that, the option for kids are the same as for adults. Anything from Zoom and Skype to Apple's iMessage, which requires an iPhone, iPad, or, or iPod Touch, but at least gives parents the ability to implement fairly powerful controls. With Messenger Kids, Ms. Elgerma and others point to concerns about privacy, given the breach of tens of millions of Facebook users' data by Cambridge Analytics, a data firm that Facebook suspended after learning it misled the social media giant and violated its policy for handling users' data during the 2016 presidential election. Just so you know, that's a lie. There is concern around the facts that you're putting your kids into Facebook ecosystem, she said. Facebook pointed me to a blog written by the company's chief privacy officer, which said Messenger Kids collects children's names and all of the content they share through it, through it, including text, solely to personalize the experience. The company says it might share information with third-party service providers, but only for the purpose of improving the app. It doesn't sell kids' data, lie, and since there are no ads in the apps, it isn't used for targeting either. Ms. Henderson the New York mom is grappling with the macro question the apps poses. We're opting into what has become a monopoly on how we communicate socially, she said. The app has been a positive experience for her daughter and has even led her to communicate more frequently with family members, she says. What's going on behind the scene is where the concern lies. Brianna Isla a development director at the private school in Massapequa, New York, has similar concerns when she began receiving requests for her five-year-old daughter to join Messenger Kids. She ultimately decided to hold off on signing her daughter up for the app, opting instead to schedule FaceTime calls with the girl's friend. I know how easy it is to get suckered into being on Facebook, and I don't want to impart that habit in her at such a young age, she said. It's hard enough as an adult to stay off it. What can, what you can do? Children's media experts say parents who allow their children to chat with friends using Messenger's kids can follow some guidelines to ease them into social media. Start slowly. So many... <laughs> So many decisions feel like you're all or nothing, but you can tell your kids you're doing it as a trial period, which makes it easier to take away if you're not comfortable with it, 
said Tracy Foster, executive director of START, a digital wellness nonprofit. You can try for one week with one friend and see how it's going and then add uh, other friends. Provide direction. If the goal of using the app is to facilitate the connection between your children and their friends, Ms. Foster suggests giving kids conversation topics. Otherwise, the exchange may turn into a flurry of shared emojis without any real subs substance. Explain the etiquette. Kids are more likely to be hurt or confused by text or by delayed responses because of the lack of context in online communications. Encourage your kids to be respectful of how others and what time they are texting or video calling friends. If your child has to step away for dinner, they should explain that to their friends so they don't leave them hanging. So there you go. If you want your five-year-old texting and getting in social media, there you go. But uh, we did try the, um, last week when I was uh, sharing with you the, the grandparents uh, babysitting with the, uh, the uh, Together app, I did try that with my uh, three-year-old grandson. It went okay. We, we're, we, we were able to get two hours with it, with my uh, daughter encouraging him because uh, she was making cookies and I was kind of keeping his attention while she was doing that. As long as he got a cookie every now and then, we were able to play games. So it, it, it passed the cookie test. As long as he got cookies, everything was going okay. But the cookies were so pretty, the prettiest cookies he ever seen. So as long as he was getting one of those pretty cookies, he was happy. <laughs> so that, that's what you have to do. You got to feed them cookies to keep uh, three-year-olds attention, especially if you're making them in front of him. So let's uh, scoot on over to the editorial opinions. They've been really hopping. That's why I waited till Thursday to do, uh, do some of these um, uh, these uh, this uh, Wall Street Journal this week because the editorials have been crazy. Let's start off with uh, you may know about uh, General Flynn, a three-star Army general. So let's read a little bit about him. The Flynn unmaskers unmasked. Now we know who knew about the Russian calls, including Joe Biden. So what is unmasking before I get into the article? That's when the, they're eavesdropping on calls uh, through FISA and through other means. And that's how they learned uh, about General Flynn talking to the Russian ambassador, which he was supposed to be talking to. When news stories appeared in early 2017 about Michael Flynn's conversation with Russian ambassador to the U.S., there's columns wondered how Mr. Flynn's call was so widely known. The names of private U.S. citizens caught on tape by U.S. intelligence are supposed to be, quote, mass, so their privacy is protected. Well, now we know GOP Senator Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson on Wednesday released a declassified list of Obama administration officials who, in their waning days in power, unmasked the conversation of Mr. Flynn, who was set to be become President Trump's national security advisor. It seems everyone but the night janitor wanted to know who Mr. Flynn was talking to. A stunning 39 separate officials snooped on Mr. Flynn's conversation with foreign actors, lodging nearly 50 unmasking demands between November 30th, 2016 and January 12, 2017. Our sources say the nearly dozen redacted names on the list are likely intelligence types who might have a legitimate interest in knowing who their foreign targets were speaking to in the U.S. But most of the rest are partisan officials who had no business spying on their successors. The list include these White House 
Uh, then White House Chief of Staff Dennis Madonna, the then Vice President Joe Biden, and then Secretary of Chesery Jacob Liu, Ambassador to the UN and Obama's confidant Samantha Powers, made no fewer than seven requests. Though she told Congress she had no recollection of unmasking Mr. Flynn. Mr. Flynn was unmasked by at least four U.S. ambassadors, six Treasury officials, and people connected to the Energy and Justice Department and NATO, among others. Then FBI Director James Comey, then CIA Director John Brennan, and then Director of National Intelligence James Clapper also made the list. This means they had access to the transcript of any phone conversations Mr. Flynn had with foreign sources as he prepared to take power. The media, Cordon's uh, uh, Santer, that protects Democrats, will say this is no big deal because unmasking is routine and legal. But if the masking rule means nothing is practiced, why pretend it exists? The Flynn unmasking is important because it occurred amid a media frenzy over supposed Trump campaign collusion with Russia. Leaks to the Washington Post about the conversation between the Russian ambassador and both Mr. Flynn and soon-to-be Attorney General Jeff Sessions were played up as central to the collusion scandal. They caused Mr. Session to recuse himself from the Russian probe and Mr. Flynn to be fired. While unmasking isn't illegal, leaking intelligence is. There are other dots to connect. Documents released last week showed that former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates first learned about Flynn's wiretapping from no less than President Barack Obama in a January 5th, 2017 Oval Office meeting. At least one of the unmaskers must have told Mr. Obama. The dates of the unmasking raised further questions. The FBI's interest in Mr. Flynn was supposedly triggered by conversations starting December 29, 2016. Yet Mr. Flynn was first unmasked a month earlier shortly after Mr. Trump named him security advisor. The Mr. Donna unmasking takes place on January 5th, 2017, the day of the Oval Oval Office meeting at which Mr. Flynn was discussed. Mr. Biden's unmasking request was made on January 12th, 2017, The day the Washington Post reported on the Flynn-Russia conversation, Mr. Biden has some explaining to do. All of this is fodder for U.S. Attorney John Durham as he tries to unmask the origin of the Russian collusion political ambush. The Flynn unmaskings and the timely media leaks take the story into the Obama White House. The peaceful transition of power is a hallmark of the American democracy, or at least it used to be. It isn't supposed to be an opportunity for the administration that lost the election to cripple its successors as they take power. So there you go. That's the big reason the unmasking is such a crazy event. And that's why it's such a big deal. All right, Judge Sullivan's bad judgment. Now, with all this unmasking, we also learned that that uh, there's a lot of funny business going on. Judge Sullivan's bad judgment. Can Flynn be sentenced when prosecutors say there was no crime? If the prosecution and defense both want to drop a case, can a federal judge refuse and sentence the defendant anyway. The easy call should be no, which makes all the more bizarre federal judge Emmett Sullivan's decision Tuesday to invite outside briefs in the Michael Flynn case. 
Judge Sullivan refused to grant the Justice Department's request to drop the prosecution and thus Mr. Flynn's guilty plea after justice discovered that exculpatory evidence had been denied to the defense. The judge invited comments from people outside the case, which accounts to the de facto outsourcing of the prosecution to partisan legal analysts who want Mr. Flynn to hang because he worked for, for President Trump. One such ban calls itself the Watergate prosecutors, who included Nick Ackerman, when Donald Trump Jr. released emails relating to a meeting with a Russian lawyer at Trump's tower, Mr. Ackerman declared him guilty of outright treason. As special counsel Robert Mueller reported, showed that Trump Tower meeting ac- amounted to nothing. Judge Sullivan doesn't normally ask others to write his decisions, so what's the point in this case? This isn't a Supreme Court argument seeking competing points of view. The competition here is between defense and prosecution, and they both now agree. This is a criminal case subject to normal rules of evidence that were clearly violated by Mr. Mueller's prosecution team. Our friends at the New York Sun speculate that Judge Sullivan may want to keep the prosecution going for months so a Biden Justice Department can revive it. We hope that's wrong, though we do recall that Judge Sullivan some months back in open court asked prosecutors if Mr. Flynn might have been charged with treason. One issue here is the role of a judge in the U.S. system, which is to adjudicate cases and controversies, not to supplicate the prosecution duty of the executive branch. There's also the matter of simple fairness. Mr. Flynn has endured three years of public trial because he was caught up in a Russian collusion allegation that turned out to be based on nothing more than Russian disinformation. Justice now says Mr. Flynn's statement to the FBI weren't criminal because the interview lacked any investigative legal basis. And in any case, the agents at the time said They didn't believe he was lying. Is it serving the cause of justice to keep Mr. Flynn Flynn hanging for many more months so partisan op-ed writers can influence Judge Sullivan's thinking? Judge Sullivan's judgment is all the more disappointing because he has enjoyed a reputation for holding prosecutors accountable for their obligation to turn over Brady material evidence that could be exculpatory to the defense. If Judge Sullivan insists on Mr. Flynn's continued prosecution, even as prosecutors concluded the facts don't support it, he will likely to be overturned on appeal. The path to serving justice for Mr. Flynn and maintaining Judge Sullivan's reputation for holding prosecutors accountable all point to a ruling that drops all charges against Mr. Flynn with prejudice, so this travesty of a case is ended once and for all. So we'll see what the judge does here to see if he upholds true law or whether he makes an idiot of himself. But we'll see. All right. We have time for one more. All the Adam Schiff transcripts. Newly released documents show he knew all along that there was no proof of Russian Trump collusion. Americans expect the politicians will lie, but sometimes the examples are so brazen that they deserve special notice. Newly released congressional testimony shows that Adam Schiff spread falsehood shamelessly about Russia and Donald Trump for three years, even as his own committee gathered contrary evidence. The House Intelligence Committee last week released 57 transcripts of interviews it conducted in its investigation into Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. The committee probe started in January 2017 under then 
Chairman Devin Nunes and concluded in March 2018 with a report finding no evidence that the Trump campaign conspired with the Kremlin. Most of the transcripts were ready for release long ago, but Mr. Schiff oddly refused to release them after he became chairman in 2019. He only released them last week when the White House threatened to do it first. Now we know why. From the earliest days of collusion narrative, Mr. Schiff insisted that he had evidence proven the plot. In March 2017 on MSNBC, Mr. Schiff teased that he couldn't go into particulars, but there is more than circumstantial evidence now. In December 2017, he told CNN that collusion was a fact. The Russians offered help. The campaign accepted it. The Russians gave help, and the president made full use of that help. In April 2018, Mr. Schiff released his response to Mr. Nunez's report, stating that it find, its finding of no collusion was unsupported by the facts and the investigative record. None of this was true, and Mr. Schiff knew it. In July 2017, here's what former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper told Mr. Schiff and his colleagues. Quote, I never saw any direct empirical evidence that the Trump campaign or someone in it was plotting, conspiring with the Russians to meddle with the election, unquote. Three months later, former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch agreed that while she's seen, quote, concerning information, quote, I don't recall anything being briefed up to me, unquote. Former Deputy AG Sally Yates concurred several weeks later, quote, We were at the fact-gathering stage here, not the conclusion stage, unquote. The same goes for the FBI agent who started the collusion probe in 2016. Most remarkably, the former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe admitted the Bureau's reason for opening the case was nonsense. Asked in December 2017 why the FBI obtained a secret surveillance warrant on former Trump aide Carter Page rather than on George Papadopoulos, whose casual conversation with a foreign diplomat was the catalyst of, for the probe, Mr. McCabe responded, quote, Papadopoulos' comment didn't particularly indicate that he was the person that had had, that was interacting with the Russians, unquote. No one else was either. On it, on it went, a parade of former Obama officials who declared under oath they'd seen no evidence of collusion or conspiracy. Susan Rice, Ben Rhodes, Samantha Powers. Interviews with Trump campaign or administration officials also yielded no conclusive evidence. Mr. Schiff had access to those transcripts. Even as he claimed, he had ample proof of collusion and wrote his false report. He's still making it up. Last week, he said the transcripts contain evidence of Trump campaign efforts to invite, make use of, and cover up Russia's help in the 2016 presidential election. The question we've had asked friends in the media is when are they going to stop playing the fool by putting him on the air? Mr. Schiff is a powerful figure with access to secrets that the rest of us don't have and can't check. He misled the country repeatedly on an issue that consumed American politics. President Trump often spreads falsehoods and inverts facts, but at least he's paid a price for it in media criticism and public mistrust. An industry of media fact-checkers is dedicated to parsing his every word. As for Mr. Schiff, no one should ever believe another word, he says. Well, that's all the time I have for this half hour. Just hold on and grab your drinks and grab your, your edibles, whatever it is at this time of the day, because it's uh, 5.43 p.m. here on a, a Thursday night. So I'll be right back. You hang in there. This is Bill Feltham. I'll be right back. 
Hi, this is Bill Feldman coming to you with the second half hour of the Wall Street Journal. And our first uh, article for this is from Kimberly Strassel. Moving the shutdown goalpost. Liberals try to set Trump up to take the blame for any further coronavirus death. This is from April 16, 2020 at 7 p.m., and today is May 14th, and this article is still relevant. Here we go. The shutdown came, the shutdown conquered, long live the shutdown. That's the line congressional Democrats and liberal journalists are now adopting as they set new battle lines in the pandemic debate. The Trump administration might have thought the hard call was shutting down the U.S. economy. The left intends to make reopening it far harder, lacing it with political risk by raising the bar for success to fantasy heights. Speaker Nancy Pelosi lashed President Trump during a private call with her caucus Monday, saying he was putting Americans in grave danger if he rushed to reopen the economy at the end of this month reported Politico this week. The article laid out Mrs. Pelosi's requirement. Under a robust testing and contact tracing system is in place, it would be impossible for the president to guarantee Americans a safe re-entry into their normal life. Congressional Democrats are meanwhile debating their, quote, own plan to reopen the nation, unquote, says Politico, with legislation that would ask each state to submit a plan, and that would also require adequate testing and contact tracing to prevent a second outbreak. The Washington Post reports that Trump has been so insistent on the reopening that some officials worry only a narrow window exists to provide information to change his mind or to ensure that the effort to reopen does not significantly add to the country's rising number of infections and deaths. By these standards, no lockdown may end until the Trump administration can guarantee a safe world in which people return to normal. The feds must stand up a testing system capable of hunting down and sniffing out each new infection. There can be no more outbreaks, and reopening cannot significantly add to existing counts and the press reserves the authority to define to define significantly. The unsaid corollary is that Mr. Trump will be held politically responsible for reopening in any way that fails to meet these baselines. On the hook for each subsequent death. Talk about moving goalposts. A month ago, the administration announced its 15-day plan to flatten the curve and the slow spread of the virus. Examine those phrases. The goal of the shutdown was never to eradicate the disease, an impossibility absent a vaccine. The lockdown was designed to buy the health sector time to make sure all the cases didn't hit at once in a crush that would overwhelm hospitals a la Italy. In that regards, the Trump administration has become a victim of its own success. The guidelines did flatten the curve. As ugly as the outbreak has been, even New York City and other hotspots have had enough ventilators. Numerous emergency field hospitals ended up sitting empty. The lockdown has been so effective that it has allowed Mr. Trump's political opponents to lay out a false narrative of what counts as victory. The political criticism is extraordinary or cynicism, is extraordinary. The liberal cognoscenti can read the scientific data as well as anyone. All of it makes clear this battle is far from over. While widespread testing may help, it won't eradicate the virus. They also know even among months of lockdown, much less the year needed for a vaccine, would mean severe stress for the economy. Reopening must go forward, and that will be that will will by necessitate mean more outbreaks, more cases, and more deaths. 
That was always going to happen in a pandemic. Yet Ms. Pelosi sees in this moment a political opportunity to pin the blame for the natural course of a disease on the White House. The administration spent this week working on a plan for reopening, holding calls with business leaders and governors, and tapping experts for a new task force. It understands it needs to get this right. Come election day, Mr. Trump is likely to be judged more on the success of his efforts to get the economy back on track than on the shutdown itself. That means opening in a way that doesn't instantly lurch the country into a second peak infection scenario, which would inspire calls for a second debilitating shutdown. What's missing from the White House reopening plan and what is urgently required is management of expectations. The administration needs to keep reminding the country of the original mission, to flatten the curve, and it needs to define quickly its own measurements of success. That means explaining the limitations of even a wide-scale testing regimen, preparing the country for continued rising death tolls, and warning that this virus is going to be with us for many months to come. It also means enlisting governors to help in delivering the message, as well as to share in responsibility and rewards of reopening. No politician likes to deliver hard truth, but that's a far better strategy for this pandemic than stepping into the trap Democrats are laying. And that's from Kimberly Strassel. So if you're paying attention to what's going on right now, that's exactly what the Democrats are laying with this $3 trillion uh, bill that's uh, being sent forward. It's a very, uh, very disgusting. And speaking of disgusting, let's look at what California is doing. Elon Musk isn't taking it anymore. The Mercial Tesla CEO has a point about desperate lockdown treatment. Tesla CEO Elon Musk is no Paul Revere, but his defiance of Alameda County's shutdown order captures the frustration among businesses like Howard Beale's primal scream in the movie Network. California Governor Gavin Newsom, which if you don't know is Nancy Pelosi's nephew, last week allowed some non-essential businesses to begin to reopen. But six Bay Area counties, including Alameda, where Tesla assembles most of its electric cars in the U.S., doubled down on their lockdowns. Frankly, this is the final straw. Tesla will now move into HQ and future programs to Texas, Nevada immediately, Mr. Musk tweeted Saturday. If we even retain Fremont manufacturing activity at all, it will be dependent on how Tesla is treated in the future. Tesla is the last car maker left in California. A decade ago, Mr. Musk re- rescued and retrofitted an auto, making, uh, auto manufacturing plant in Fremont that Toyota had abandoned. The plant now employs 10,000 middle-class workers, many of whom live in rural San Joaquin County, where another Tesla factory has been allowed to operate amid California's shutdown because it is classified essential. This desperate government treatment, uh, yeah, treatment is arbitrary and without a rational basis, Tesla states, in a lawsuit against Alameda County, pointing out that the infection and fatality rates in Alameda and San Joaquin counties are similar. Mr. Musk also argued that Tesla is an essential business because it makes electric motors and battery systems that are crucial infrastructures. The county's order violates the due process clause of the 14th Amendment because it fails to give reasonable notice to persons of ordinary intelligence of what is forbidden under law, the lawsuit argues. He has a point, and arbitrary government distinctions about which businesses can stay open often seems to be based on politics rather than public health or science. 
You can understand Mr. Musk's frustration when Alameda County officials have allowed pot shops to stay open while shuttering his Tesla plant, though the company has developed protocols to protect workers. Other governors, including Michigan's Gretchen Whitmer, have given the green light to auto plants run by Tesla's competitors. Mr. Musk dared Alameda officials to arrest him when he reopened Tesla's plant Monday, and he may get his wish. We don't encourage lawbreakers, but a legal test of desperate lockdown treatment might rein in the inner dictators who are appearing in many places in America in these pandemic days. So there you go. People are starting to get tired of this uh, dictatorship from the Democrat leaders. And that's where it's coming from. And next up, Okay, here's another one that I was listening to the other day. The Supreme Court and Trump's tax returns. The stakes are bigger than the political fate of this president. This is from May 11th. It will be a full online house on Tuesday when the Supreme Court hears a legal doubleheader over President Trump's tax return. Mr. Trump has broken political norms by refusing to release his returns. But the court will have to consider whether letting Democrats subpoena them will do more lasting damage to the country's law and institutions. Trump versus Mazars concern whether House Democrats can subpoena the president's financial records. We've urged Mr. Trump to release his tax returns, and his refusal has let Democrats claim they are a Rosetta Stone to a Russian money laundering conspiracy or something. An IRS audit probably would have turned up any tax fraud and no law obliges a president to release his return. But mere days before special counsel Robert Mueller's Russian non-collusion report was publicly released, the House Oversight Committee subpoenaed the president's accounting firm, Mazars, for eight years of his business return records. The Intelligence and Financial Service Committee subpoenaed Capital One and Dosh Bank for his family's financial records. While the Constitution doesn't grant Congress subpoena powers, the court has allowed lawmakers to exercise this authority if they have, quote, a valid legislative purpose. Barnablatt, 1959. The court has unusually deferred to Congress states stated legislative purpose. We've argued, including last year in New York versus Department of Commerce, that judges shouldn't probe the possible political motivations for official actions. But here, Democrats are transparent about targeting the president. He refuses to turn over the tax returns. What does he have to hide? Unquote. Financial Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters mused last May. Then Oversight Chairman Elijah Cummings wrote in a memo that his subpoena was necessary to investigate whether President Trump, quote, may have engaged in illegal conduct before and during his tenure in office, unquote. Democrats later dressed up their subpoenas with fictitious legislative purposes. The financial records could be, quote, a useful case study, unquote, to learn about, quote, unsafe lending practices, unquote, and, quote, money laundering, unquote, as well as, quote, effects by Russia and other foreign entities to influence the U.S. political process during and since the 2016 U.S. election, unquote, they wrote in court briefs. So all that's looking for a crime, not a crime. Mr. Trump's business records, they added, might also show how, quote, enhanced Prudential standards are being applied to the largest banks operating in the U.S. United States, unquote. Democrats don't need Mr. Trump's tax returns to study leverage in banking. This would be like Republicans subpoenaing Barack Obama's birth certificate to study immigration legislation. As D.C. Circuit Courts of Appeal Judge Naomi Rao explained in her Mazar's dissent, 
Allowing the committee to issue this subpoena for legislative purposes would turn Congress into a roving inquisition over a co-equal branch of government. Medical records, private emails, cell phone logs, none of the president's personal papers would be out of Congress's reach. We can hear the left rejoin, but Republicans investigated Whitewater subpoena business records from the Clintons and their associates. Yes, but they had evidence of financial misconduct from a criminal referral. The legality of Congress's Whitewater subpoenas was never decided by a court. Remember, the Rose Law Firm billing records that were found in the White House residency two years after being subpoenaed? Democrats have subpoenaed Mr. Trump's records despite no evidence of financial crimes, though Mr. Mueller found no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Democrats still argue their subpoenas are necessary to investigate collusion. In short, there's no legal precedence for the Democrats' subpoenas, and the justices will have to consider the damage that upholding the subpoenas would do to the separation of powers that would outlive the Trump presidency. There is at least some legal precedence to support Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr.'s subpoena of Mr. Trump's financial records as part of a criminal investigation. We don't think a president should be absolutely immune from criminal investigation, as Mr. Trump's attorneys argue. By Tuesday's second case, Trump versus Vance raises vexing questions about federalism. The two important court presidents here are U.S. versus Nixon, 1974, and Clinton versus Jones, 1997. But neither is precisely apt. In Nixon, the court allowed a special counsel to subpoena White House tapes in a criminal investigation of President's associates. Jones held that a president is not immune from civil lawsuits in federal court for out-of-office conduct. In both cases, the court emphasized that courts should not proceed against a president as against an ordinary individual. Both rulings were narrowly drawn to the facts at hand. The Solicitor General makes a compelling argument that there should be a heightened judicial standard for criminal subpoenas directed at a sitting president, including a strong showing of critical need. This is important to protect the president from harassment by 50 state attorney generals and 2,300 local district attorneys who may have political motives. Mr. Trump won't be president forever, and the courts will have to reflect on how its decision will affect America's political institutions amid hyper-partisanship that won't end when a Democrat takes the White House. So there you go. That's a, a, a nice way to look at everything. Everything won't end when, when President Trump is no longer president. All right. All right, looking, there is a, that case was heard, that's what I'm looking for, the results, and the opinions were, let's see if it's on the front page, because the opinion was uh, set. Let's see where it's at. Because the because the Supreme Court did did not allow the subpoenas to go through. Let me find out where that article is. Oh, well. Well, let's just move on to this next one. A 
HHS vaccine expert details complaint and house testimony. Right, uh, Rick Bright says a lack of preparation by the Trump administration is causing the U.S. to face unprecedented illness and fatalities and a resurgence of coronavirus as early as this fall. This is the one that says he was uh, removed from his uh, position. A government vaccine specialist who was moved out of his job last month testified Thursday that the lack of a comprehensive national strategy to address coronavirus may impede efforts to distribute a future vaccine and is causing current problems such as a lack of testing supplies. The window is closing to address this pandemic because we still do not have a standard, centralized, coordinated plan to take our nation through this response, Rick Bright said at a House Committee on Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee hearing, adding that, I believe we could have done better. The testimony Thursday reflects a growing push by Democrat lawmakers to further scrutinize the administration's response to the pandemic that has killed more than 84,000 people in the U.S. Dr. Bright has garnered attention because he is a prominent administration official who is now publicly criticizing the way the nation's top health leaders handled the crisis. Dr. Bright, Bright, who was removed in April from his job heading health and Human Services Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, filed a complaint with the Office of Special Counsel, an independent federal investigation agency, over the decision. He said he was transferred to the NIH in retaliation for voicing concern about the safety of anti-malaria drugs that Mr. Trump had touted as a possible treatment. HHS has disputed Mr. Bright's characterization characterization of the reason he was removed as head of BARDA. An official said there already have been plans to remove him following an outside consultation report in 2018 and 2019 on problems with the agency. Dr. Bright's testimony on Thursday depicted top leaders at HHS as failing to act aggressively, leading to delays he said will exacerbate the timeline for economic reopening. If we fail to improve our response now based on science, I fear the pandemic will get worse and be prolonged, he said, warning that without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. He said lack of access to a virus, which he sought for his research, hampered faster initiatives on a vaccine. And he said tensions between him and his superiors grew because HHS was pursuing shortcuts rather than fully evaluating safety concerns. Dr. Bright said it took weeks of pressing before officials surveyed manufacturers about whether they even make masks and delayed the shortage then forced the U.S. to obtain masks from other countries without proper safety overviews. He told lawmakers that he received an email from a mask supplier that bluntly stated, we're in deep S-H-I-T, the world is, and we need to act. I pushed that forward to the highest levels I could in HHS and got no response, he said. President Trump, who said that he had watched part of Mr. Bright's testimony, told reporters he looks like an angry, disgruntled employee who, frankly, according to some people, didn't do a very good job. HHS Secretary Alex Azar who spoke to reporters alongside Mr. Trump, said Mr. Bright's allegations do not hold water. Everything he is complaining about was achieved, Mr. Azar said. Michael Caputo, a spokesman for HHS, said on Twitter during the hearing, we look forward to countering chapter and verse of his fictional narrative. Just the work of a disgruntled employee the President of the U.S. couldn't even pick out of a lineup. Much of Thursday's hearing focused on the use of drug, of the drug hydrochloroquine as a remedy for COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus. Dr. Bright said he resisted pressure from HHS to make the drug widely available because of the lack of evidence that it was helpful in treating COVID-19 and over safety concerns. 
Representative Michael Burgess, Republican out of Texas, pressured Dr. Bright on why he initially supported investment in the drug if he was concerned. Dr. Bright said information about side effects came after those investments, and he said he was directed by HHS to request authorization for the use of the drug. Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Stephen Hahn, whose employees worked with Dr. Bryce on approving the use of hydrochloroquine to treat COVID-19, said in an interview Wednesday that the approval followed science and peer review studies to, to guide the process. A medical study in two federal agencies have since cast doubt on hydrochloroquine's effectiveness and safety. Some Republicans criticized Thursday hearing hearing as premature. This subcommittee has become political sport, Mr. Berger said, questioning why the complaint was being probed in a hearing rather than a customary investigative process. Democrats said they were concerned by Dr. Bright's assertions. (laughs) I'm tired of those who bear the responsibility accepting none of it while deflecting blame on others, said Representative Anna Eshoo, Democrat California. She called the complaint one of the most specific and troubling that she has ever heard or ever seen. Ahead of Thursday's hearing, Mr. Trump wrote on Twitter that Mr. Bright should no longer be working for our government. Federal government whistleblowers are afforded protection under the law, which makes it illegal for an official to be dismissed or demoted for filing a whistleblower complaint. Last week, the Office of Special Counsel determined there were responsible, reasonable grounds to believe the ouster of Dr. Bright was retaliatory and recommended he remain in his job until an investigation is completed. His lawyer said, HHS is reviewing the determination. Eh, the guy's just a whiner. Hydrochloroquine was proven to be effective in many countries. So... The guy has no no foot to stand on. Oh, well. There you go. All right, and we're talking about tracking. Here's just part of an article that I'll read to you. Uh, This is something that you should be very concerned about. Coronavirus demands a privacy law. Silicon Valley role in contact tracing and social distancing Enforcement has Americans worried, reopening the economy and returning to normal life in the absence of COVID-19 vaccine may be possible, we're told, with a combination of widespread testing and contact tracing. But these solutions will depend heavily on technology, and Silicon Valley doesn't have the best record when it comes to protecting consumer privacy. Congress must step into the breach with federal privacy legislation establishing guardrails for tech companies handling our most personal information. The Fourth Amendment protects Americans from government overreach, but the reasonable expectation of privacy test complicates the relationship between government actions and commercial data collection. Georgetown Law Professor Paul Ohm has observed that the Dramatic expansion of technology-fueled corporate surveillance of our private lives automatically expands police surveillance, too. Given how the Supreme Court has construed the reasonable expectation of privacy tests and the third-party doctrine, across the country people are being fined and jailed for not following social distancing guidelines. It's one thing for the cop to break up a backyard barbecue because of a neighbor's complaint, but if the police rely on data collection rather than their direct observation to enforce social distancing rules, their actions may run afoul of the Fourth Amendment. The Supreme Court has reined in warrantless tracking through global positioning system devices placed on vehicles and through cell phone data. Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, Poland have required people infected with or exposed to the coronavirus to download smartphone apps so the government can make sure they are following quarantine restriction. India recently mandated use of a contact tracing app for office workers. So, folks, I'm not going to read the rest of this article because it goes on with the same thing. It's talking about our, our rights here in the United States being violated, you being and I being forced to load down 
download an app to your cell phones so the government can track us. So be looking forward to that and decide now if you're going to comply or not because it's coming. This is Bill Felsom. I hope you enjoyed the articles and were informed by the articles that were read to you this day. So God bless you. God bless your week. In Jesus' name, this is Bill Feltham. Until next week, God bless you. And God bless your week. Thank you.